Now let's turn our attention to the message for today. We're in the middle of a series called The Advent Conspiracy. The word Advent refers to that period of time before the period of anticipation, before the arrival of someone. So, for example, last week, my wife and I invited my daughter and the grandkids to come over for a visit one morning. And uh, once we got the text saying that they were on their way, we officially entered into Advent mode. Now, there are two things that occur in Advent mode. The first is preparing for the arrival. So whoever you're waiting for, uh, you need to get ready for the arrival. So in our case, we got out the toys that our grandkids like to play with, and my wife got some cookie dough out of the refrigerator, and we got things ready for their arrival. The second part of Advent mode is the waiting part. So after we got things ready, we kind of kept saying to each other, did you hear that? Did you hear, is that a car door? Is that the sound of little feet? We just were kept waiting for their arrival. Now, Advent is the word that Christians have historically attached to these four weeks leading up to the day of Christmas. And it describes very accurately what was true of that first Christmas. The arrival of the Messiah had been prophesied hundreds of years before. And there was both preparation and mostly waiting going on for the day when the Messiah would be born and arrive. Now, Advent has also been true of the experience of every Christmas since that first Christmas. And that's because when Jesus left, after he accomplished his work here on earth, he said that he was going to return a second time. And he was going to return to wrap up history, and that it would be good for us to be found ready whenever he returned. So that puts us in Advent mode. So while we wait, we prepare. Christmas is an annual opportunity for us to remember this long-anticipated arrival and the need to prepare for it. But as was true on that first Christmas, very few people are actively preparing and therefore ready for his arrival. And if we're going to be ready, we need to conspire to do so. And that's the second part of our two-word message series title. A conspiracy is a counter plan. It's a decision to go against the obvious invisible plans and chart a different course. Now, we can't expect our culture to keep us on track and guide us to make the proper preparations for the return of Christ. That's on us. We have to take responsibility for that. So this Christmas season, this season of Advent, we are looking at the themes that tend to dominate now the way Christmas is celebrated and normally done in our culture. And we're asking ourselves if there might be a better plan, if there might be some better ways for us to get ready and wait for the return of Christ. So far, we've talked about two parts of our conspiracy plan. The first was the plan to look up during this season. Elliot, who did the first message, talked about the fact that all of the Christmas lights that are put up this time of year come from the fact that the arrival of Jesus Christ is really the arrival of God's light into the world. He is referred to as the light of the world. And so we do Christmas lights now, pointing all the way back to that fact. And so we talked about how it is that we might plan to look beyond just the beauty and the trappings of this season and actually look up to Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Then the second part was the waiting part of our plan. We talked about how to abstain from some things and how that might help us fix our hearts on what is truly important in this season of preparation leading up for Christmas. Now today we're going to talk about what is probably the most counterpart of our conspiracy, and that is spending less. We are, of course, in the middle of the busiest shopping season 
of the year. This happens every year. Eight out of the ten busiest shopping days of the year occur between Black Friday and the day after Christmas. Why are they all piled in this season? Well, it, it all started 2,000 years ago when God gave us the greatest of all gifts, the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. The wise men were the first ones that really brought gifts to mark that event. And since that, more and more people began to give gifts to each other to commemorate this event. And so that's how we got into this season of gift giving. But the season has been shifting for some time now, particularly in modern cultures. It's been shifting from a time that's just gift giving, which it still is, but increasingly it's becoming more and more about increased spending on ourselves, in addition to the gifts that we're giving. Deloitte, the large accounting firm, conducts an annual holiday retail survey, trying to give retailers a a sense of what they anticipate the season is going to be like for them in terms of sales. And this is one of the summary statements in this year's uh, version of their retail survey. They say this, quote, the holiday season is no longer just the time to buy gifts. We have seen the rise in consumer spending. This is a trend that's been going on, and they've been tracking it. The, the gift giving is kind of declining a little bit, but the consumer spending is going up. Now, it's gotten to the point now where retailers really aren't even subtle about this anymore. They're just going straight for increasing our self-spending. In fact, I saw an interesting commercial I want to show you. It's a commercial for a car. It's an Austin Martin, very nice car. It's about 15 seconds, but it really catches your attention. So I want you to take a look at this and listen to what they say. Of all the sights and sounds of the season, this one is the most joyful and triumphant. The Aston Martin Vantage, $16.99 a month, zero down. Isn't that amazing? Zero down. That means you can walk in, sign something, I mean, your life away for a while, <laughs> and drive off with that amazing car. But I want you to listen to what they said. Of all the sights and the sounds of the season, this is the most joyful and triumphant. Where have we heard that before? Joyful and triumphant. Well, that's the Christmas carol. Here are the lyrics. O come, all ye faithful, here are the words, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye, not to your local Aston Martin dealership, but to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. So how did we get from adoring Jesus to adoring, you know, the sound of, I mean, it's an amazing sound. But how do we travel that distance? How did this season of gift giving turn into a season of increased self-spending? Well, Ikea knows how this happened. I want you to listen to this short video clip of the creative director of Ikea here in America as he describes the pattern of spending in our nation. Let's listen to this. Almost 20% of our buying decisions are based on logic and needs. 80% of our buying decisions are actually based on emotions. And we try to make that connection or bridge that connection. Of course, we are retailers, so we try to uh, make sure that you, you know, grab a, a, thing, a thing or two. So my name is Richard Lagrand. I'm the creative director for IKEA here in the US. Which is an important job. He's in charge of how the products are presented in the store. That includes layout. Retailers pay close attention to how their floor plan can change in-store behavior. 
Grid layouts emphasize speed and convenience. Or freeform layouts allow exploration, which can make customers visit more parts of the shop. And racetrack designs create a loop that exposes customers to a certain path of product. IKEA uses a fixed path through a maze of product displays, and that can extend the distance traveled in store. So the more you travel, the more items by definition as a shopper you are going to be exposed to. At the entrance, most customers would be drawn to a bright yellow bin of bags placed next to the escalator. Spots of light guide your eye to the entrance of the showroom. And before you know it, you're taking the scenic route. So with light, you can actually steer consumers towards the different areas and towards different uh, product selections. On average, customers only visit about a third of a retailer's floor area. And IKEA's layout forces customers to cover more ground. So I, uh, I've always struggled with IKEA personally. Now I know why. I mean, I always felt like a rat in a maze looking for cheese, and that's literally what I am. I'm in a maze. It's an intentional maze. I mean, a lot of members of my family love IKEA, and so every time I go, it's, a, it's an act of love on my part to participate in that. But beyond whatever you think of IKEA, I want you to catch the phrase that the creative director said at the beginning. Maybe the, the accent might have thrown you off, but here's what he says. 80% of the buying decisions in IKEA are emotional, 20% are based on logic and needs. Isn't that amazing? 80% are emotional. Now, this isn't just an IKEA phenomenon. Research across the board for years has shown that half, 50%, of all consumer spending is what they refer to as unplanned. IKEA just goes ahead and says emotional. Unplanned spending, half of all consumer spending. IKEA has just figured out with their maze design how to get that number to go from 50% up to 80%. Basically, you've got to buy some cheese before you get out of the maze. So they figured this out. The question, I mean, this isn't I IKEA's fault. They're just really smart at this. The question is, why are we such emotional spenders? And if we don't know the answer to that, then, of course, we don't have a chance to turn this spending, this unplanned spending around personally and get control of our spending, whether it's the Christmas season or really any season of the year. The word describing what's behind all of this emotional spending is the word discontent. The root, of course, is content, which means what you have. The prefix dis simply means not. So to be discontent means that you are not okay with what you have. You want more. And what's interesting about us, it it doesn't seem to matter how much we have. We can have a lot or we can have almost nothing. But across the human experience, there's an agreement, we want more, no matter where we are on the amount of things that we have. Why? Well, we're right about the fact that something is missing from our lives. We're wrong, of course, about what that is. That's why we keep trying to add something to our lives. What it turns out is missing is a relationship with God. In sin, we have all pushed him away. We've all created distance between ourselves and God. Now, we don't think this walking through Ikea or going online and shopping. We feel this. Here's God's description of what we have all done. Romans 1.25 says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. This is an exchange that takes place. 
we were created to worship and serve our Creator, the God who made us. But if we don't do that, if we push Him away with our sin, then we make an exchange. What doesn't change is the need we have to worship and serve something. We just have to switch that with God. We switch God out for something else. And what we all tend to do is we then serve and worship something that God created. Now, Ikea may have made the piece of furniture, or Aston Martin made that amazing car, but they're just using the stuff that God put into place, the materials, the raw materials that God has given. And, of course, the car or the furniture or whatever else it is that we spend, we buy, it's a far cry from the beauty and the wonder of God, but it's as close to him as we can get. It's the closest exchange that's available to us. It's something that God has made in exchange for God himself. Now, again, we don't think this when we go out to do our shopping or we go online. We don't think, you know what, I need something to worship and something to serve. Maybe monthly payments, that'd be a good way to serve something. We, we don't think this. We just kind of feel this, and we don't exactly know why we feel this, but this is why. Now, when Jesus does return to wrap up history, worshiping him is going to be the most obvious thing that we do. In fact, we are told at that point, every knee will bow to him. We will immediately worship in the sight of Jesus Christ. Serving him will be too late. There won't be time left to serve him, but worshiping will be an instant response. But now we can't see Jesus. What we can see is the car or the furniture or whatever the other object of our next desire is. So if we are going to come and adore him, Christ the Lord, we're going to have to conspire to do that. We're going to have to plan to do that. Now, contentment occurs in two categories for us. The first category I refer to as thing contentment. The question is, am I content with what I have right now? Do I need anything else, or am I content with what I have? Thing contentment. The second category of contentment is thinking contentment. The question here is, am I content with what somebody else has? Now, the Christmas story has two scenes that are very helpful for instructing us in how to grow our contentment in each of these two categories. First, let's look at thing contentment. Again, the question for all of us is, am I content with what I have? Do I feel like I need something else to really be put together on the inside, or am I content with what I have? The scene that gives us instruction on this matter is the nativity scene. It's described for us in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Here's what we read. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the description of the nativity scene. This is the iconic scene of Christmas. Nativity is a Latin word that means place of birth. Now, you probably have one of these on display somewhere in your house or your apartment. But in the familiarity of this classic scene, we tend to miss the point that's being made. No parent would ever select an animal stable 
for their desired place of birth for their child. They would never want a feeding trough to be their child's very first crib. The point is this. This is the scene where someone who has almost nothing would be born in this kind of situation. Now, Joseph and Mary were in this predicament because they were away from home. They were in Bethlehem, and they traveled to Bethlehem to register, which meant a tax increase was coming. That's why you were called to register at this time of history. The government was about to increase the taxes. So the little that Mary and Joseph had was about to be reduced. Now, a child born into poverty is not unique in the history of the world. In fact, it's fairly common. But this was not just any child. This was God in flesh. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is this the scene that we all have in our homes and apartments? Why is this the location that God chose for the birth of his son? I think in part it's to make the point that the things, the stuff around us is never what adds to or takes away from the value of any person. In fact, every birth makes this point. I mean, this is what Job himself said when almost everything was taken from him. That's what he says in Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb. He speaks of his birth. And naked I will depart, speaks of his death. The Lord gave, in Job's case, Job was the richest man alive. And in one day, he lost almost everything the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What Job is saying, and it's amazing that he's saying this in the context of having lost almost everything, but he points to the truth that this life is not about what's added to it or taken away from it. And Job points to two scenes in everyone's life that makes this very clear. First of all, God makes this clear at the point of birth. If anything was more important than a person, it would be present at birth. But it's not. Everyone is born naked. Birth is kind of God's that's it statement. This is what is most valuable. Here's a person. Here's what really matters, and really nothing else. Things don't add to the value of this person, and if things are taken away from this person, it doesn't diminish their value. But, of course, none of us stay naked. We are clothed, and we get shoes, and we get toys, and all these are good. And as we grow, we get more expensive things that are added to our lives. And like Job, many of us acquire property and other assets and spouses and families. And so it's only natural for us to begin to think that these additions are actually adding value to us as individuals. But just in case we've spent our life getting really confused about this, God makes the exact same point when we die. He says, you know, you're going to go out the same way you came in, with nothing, naked. So, the question then you have to really ask is, if all of this stuff that's added to our life and then immediately taken away from us is not the point of life, then what is the point of life? The Bible states that it's to bring glory to God and live a life that pleases him, to do what he wants done here on earth. But it turns out we all stumble in that one. We all fall short of this, which is why this nativity scene is not just a scene of poverty. It's the most important scene 
in the world, in the history of the world. Because this is pointing to the birth that led to the death that paid the debt of our sin. Let me say it again. This nativity scene points to the one birth that led to the one death on the cross that paid the enormous debt that every one of us has incurred because of our individual sin. This is the moment when God took on a body. And then that led to a death that he did not deserve in order to give us a life that we don't deserve. Not just now, but into all of eternity. So Romans 8, 31 through 32 responds to this tremendous gift this way. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What this is saying is, this scene, this nativity scene, points and the death that follows points to the fact that God is for us. Not just a thumbs up, kind of on the sideline clapping kind of for us, but a I will spare nothing for you kind of for us. God says, I, I allowed my son to take on a human body, which is a humility that it's hard for us to even fathom. And then to watch this son be tortured and die a slow death over six hours on a cross and watch him be beaten, all for us. So what's being said here, so if someone decides that they don't like you, they don't approve of you, they want to try to devalue you and make moves against you, who are they, who's their thumbs down in comparison to God's thumbs up? You really can't even compare those two. The God who's been thinking about you and sent his son to die for you and has this standing policy of giving you whatever it will take to be of real long-term help to you, that God is for you. I mean, that's what's being said. If, if he gave this gift to you, do you think if there's anything else that you really needed, God would say, no, that's too expensive. No, he's, he's already given this. If there's something else that you really need, he'll give you that too. If you don't have it, it's because right now God says you don't need it. You can be content. So how can discontent then be true of someone for whom God has given this much to us? How can it be true of us? Well, the challenge for us is all of this is true, but we can't see it. We can see the car. We can see the furniture. We can see whatever the next object of our desires, but we can't see this gift. So what we need, then, is a contentment plan to match the facts. So here's the first part of our two-part plan today when it comes to spending less. The first part is pray before you spend. I'm not saying you shouldn't spend another dime, but I recommend that we all pause and pray before we do our next bit of consumer spending. Close your eyes. In order to focus on the one that you can't see and talk to the one that the God that you can't see. 
Thank him for the indescribable gift that he's given you in his son that we celebrate this season. And then declare, mostly for your own listening, the fact that nothing that you can buy today or any day will ever come close to the gift that you've already been given. And then ask him what he wants you to do right now on this spending decision. And then make your decision. Pray before you spend. You don't need to take a long time with this. I mean, maybe you just need to, before you walk into Ikea or wherever it is, just sit out there in the car and just, just take a few minutes to pray. To bring him into this decision. Then that brings us to the second part of contentment, and that is thinking contentment. The question here is, am I content with what other people have? We can be perfectly content until we see what somebody else has, and now we're not so content. Whenever we compare what we have and what other people have, it's because we are using others as a sign, an indicator of whether or not our lives are on track, whether or not we have enough. Whether or not our lives are going up or our lives are going down. And that is a sign that will take us off track. Near the end of the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph encounter an old prophet. His name is Simeon. This is the very final scene in the traditional Christmas story of Luke chapter 2. Here's what we read in verse 34 through 35. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon said that this child, Jesus Christ, is destined to be a sign. What does that mean? A sign is a a marker directing you to a destination. Signs are what keep us from getting lost by giving us next step indicators and instructions that help us arrive to a place that we've never been before. And signs will either assure us that we're heading in the right direction, or they will save us from wasting a whole lot of time heading in the wrong direction. Jesus is God's sign to where we've never been. That is the future. We really have two choices as we make our decisions and guide our lives into the future. We can either head off in the general direction of what we think and what other people around us think, or we can look at the sign of Jesus and follow him. Whenever we use our own heart as a sign or what other people have as our sign, indicating whether we're, our life is going up or our life is going down, we tend to get pretty lost when other people become our sign. And we live in a perpetual state of discontent. We end up spending our life pretty much driving around in circles because what other people have changes and what we want changes and we just kind of spend our life pursuing all different kinds of things. And then eventually we run out of gas. We run out of days. And we discover at that point usually that we have ended up in a future that we really didn't want. But if we will take the time to become familiar with what Jesus taught, what his directions in life are, and then direct our daily choices based on that sign, 
we will end up in a future that God created for us to experience and enjoy. But the challenge with this sign is something else Simeon said. He said, this is a sign that will be spoken against. People aren't going to like this sign. Why? Well, the simple fact about all of us is we don't like to be told what to do. Particularly, we don't like to be told that we're lost. We don't like to admit that we're lost. And the sign of Jesus is only going to be a welcome sign if you and I admit we're lost. If you don't think you're lost, that sign is going to be irritating. It's going to be spoken against. You know, if you're committed to traveling north from here, but you want to arrive in San Diego, every time you see a sign that says Los Angeles, it's going to really irritate you. Because it's going to be saying, you're off track, you're lost. It's like, I am not. It'll irritate you. But if you know you're lost, the signs can really be helpful. And if you're going the right direction, they can be very reassuring. Especially when it looks like everybody else is heading in a different direction. So Jesus, what Simeon is saying here, Jesus is the sign of God that will either assure or irritate the traveling public. It's going to be one or the other. It's not going to be a neutral sign. It's going to be an assurance for some and an irritation for others. And we we experience this. I mean, right now, you you can talk about God. Particularly, you can talk about spiritual things, spirituality. But as soon as you mention the name Jesus Christ, things get a little tense, usually. Because God or spirituality is, is kind of general. There's lots of ideas about God. There's even more ideas about spirituality. But as soon as you mention Jesus Christ, well, now you've just put up a specific sign. Here's someone that has history, a real person of history. And there's, there's stuff that he said that's written in black and white. You can't kind of make it up. Either you are following this sign or you're not following this sign. That's why things get tensed and Jesus is spoken against. Either we're following him or we're not. So a sign always forces a choice. And in doing so, it reveals our heart. That's what Simeon says. It's going to reveal our hearts. And at that point, either we're going to humble ourselves and change course or we're going to keep doing what we want to do. The other thing Simeon says here that's really interesting is he said this sign will Will, be, will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and really beyond that. What he's saying is Jesus is the intersection in the road of life that has a sign, and Jesus says, here's the direction, follow me, and your life will begin to rise. Or don't, and your life will begin to decline. So it's the point of choice. And what's interesting now about Christmas is Christmas has increasingly become a season of competing signs. On the one hand, you have the sign of Jesus saying, this is the way to elevate life. This is the direction that will really raise your life. On the other hand, are all the retailers saying, no, if you want to know that you're on track and your life is getting better, Here's how you'll know. Buy this, own this, do this. And therefore, there's competing signs. 
So the question then we all face, is Jesus the source of what is joyful and triumphant? Or is it that Aston Martin or something else? Now let me be very clear, and I want you to hear this. You can follow Jesus Christ and lease that car. It's not a sin to drive an Aston Martin. Now, before you run down and sign that paperwork, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to check in with him first. And you've got to wrestle with the question of, why are you leasing this car? And if the answer, honestly, is because I want to feel better about myself, don't do it. You're following that sign, not the sign of Jesus. Now, if you let your emotions guide you, you're going to always misread the signs. You get it wrong every time. That's why I refer to this as thinking commitment. It's not feeling commitment. Your heart's always going to be, yes, that's how my life will get better. In fact, when my wife and I watched this commercial for the first time, she turned to me and said, so what color would you like? And the funny thing was instantly I knew. I said, oh, the green one. I mean, how did I know instantly? I hadn't thought about it. I didn't even know that lease was out there. But instantly I knew, oh, the green one would be nice my heart. Someone came up to me after the first service and says, they don't come in green. It's like, well, but it showed a green on there. It's like, yeah, but they don't make them in green. So I thought, so you've been checking it out, huh? <laughs> How would you know that? You know, someone's been looking. So here's the challenge. If, if we're going to redirect the unplanned portion of our spending, whatever that is for you, we're going to need a plan. Before we spend. That's the second part of our conspiracy today. Plan before you spend. The first one is pray before you spend. Now, plan before you spend. So again, if the average is 50% of all consumer spending is unplanned, in Ikea it's 80%, we've got to reduce that number personally. I don't know what it is for you. We've got to reduce that number. The only way to do that is to plan. And I don't know of a way to plan better than develop a budget that fits your income, and don't just have it on paper, actually let, let it guide you. Stick to it. You know, the limits of your income, whatever it is that God has provided you in terms of resources, those are the outer fences of contentment. If you go beyond, if you spend beyond what God has provided, you automatically know, the warning lights go off, you have just broke, broken containment, you are now in discontent. Because what you're saying is, if you're spending more than what God has provided, what you're saying is, God, you haven't provided me enough. I'm going to have to go into debt to provide more. You've just told God he has not given you enough. Those are the outer limits of your fences of contentment. Now, if you don't have a budget because you think you can control your spending without one, you're kidding yourself. Ikea is way too smart for you. And Ikea is not the only smart retailer out there. If you walk into pretty much any store or go online with only a general idea of your spending limit, I can promise you, you will overspend. That's just the way our hearts are. Now, if you're not operating with a budget right now, because you're in a season of life where you have plenty of money and you really don't need a budget, maybe you had a budget when... You were younger, and boy, things were really tight, and you need to know where every dollar went. But now you've got more, and so you really don't need a budget because you've got plenty of money. If you don't have a budget, and that's the reason, there's a good chance 
that you might be missing out on why God has given you the extra. I mean, God has given you more than you need because he has a plan for what he wants you to do with the extra. Now, it's completely legitimate. Some of that might be extra for you. But if you haven't thought about it, if you haven't prayed about it, if you haven't come up and and dealt with a plan that has a spending limit to it, it is very likely that over time, more of the extra will go to you than God intends. So wherever you're at on the income scale, on the resource scale, we need a plan just because of how our hearts are. So in a season when our culture is telling us, spend more, and our economy is counting on us spending more, we don't have to follow along. We don't have to follow those signs. We can check in with God, and then we can spend what he leads us to spend, whatever that is. And that's because in this season, we are the people that celebrate the gift that is the foundation of all contentment. Let me read it again, Romans 8, 31. Through 32, what then shall we say in response to this, this amazing gift? What should we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We really don't need another thing. I mean, God, in his kindness, often provides us more, but we don't need it. We can enjoy particularly this season and really any season, content in what God has given us and grateful for what God has given us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this indescribable gift, the gift that is bigger than any gift, that answers the question once and for all that you are for us. And in response to that, we don't need another thing. We know that you continue to give us other things that are for our enjoyment, but we recognize that it it doesn't add anything to your love for us. And so we pray that in this season, when we remember that gift and we celebrate that gift, that you would help us to get a hold of our hearts And that we would follow the signs of Jesus, not the signs of our culture that tell us we need to spend more. God, I pray for everyone in this room that you would, as they pray and as they plan, you would give them guidance and direction about what they should spend and what they should not spend. Help us to be content in this season. When our culture is promoting our discontent, We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.